Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Shares for beginners. If you want to make money as an investor in the share market, buy quality companies at a sensible price and wait. That's it. That's so super simple. It's like losing weight or being healthy, right? Watch what you eat, do a bit of exercise. Super simple. Is it easy? <laughs> no, because hamburgers taste really good. Because sitting on the couch is much more fun than going for a walk. It's the same with shares. I can make this statement. I mean, good quality business bought at a sensible price. Well, what's a good quality business? How do I know that? You know, so the execution can be a lot more difficult, but the concept is super easy. G'day and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. Doom, carnage, bloodbath, crunch, a sea of red, crush, kill, destroy, millions and billions and trillions of market value disappearing before our eyes. We'll all be ruined. Hello, Andrew. Hi, Phil. What an intro. <laughs> well, this is the case, isn't it? But this is what we're all facing. It feels like it, doesn't it? Yeah, it's pretty scary out there. Anyway, let me introduce you before we um, go on to the rest of this. And uh, But you've been on the podcast many times, an old friend of the podcast, Andrew Page, the founder and managing director of strawman.com and co-host of the Baby Giants podcast. So are we all headed for ruin? It depends what you mean by ruin. <laughs> the old economist answer of it depends. Who was it who said, oh, someone give me a one-armed economist because they're always saying, well, on one hand, <laughs> I think history, in fact, just off air, we were talking about how we love history podcasts. And I think history is really illustrative for us investors as well because History will, will never repeat exactly, but as was it Mark Twain who said, you know, history does rhyme. It doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. And you can look at previous bear markets and recessions and even depressions, and you can sort of, doesn't guarantee anything, but there are lessons to be drawn from it. And I think one of the lessons to be drawn from it, to answer your question, is even under the worst case scenarios, at least the ones that history have served up, we have survived. We've weathered the storm and we've survived. And more importantly, when we've come out the other end, we've prospered. And the other lesson is that the people who do really badly, I'm going to focus more from the investing lens than anything else, because I guess that's what we're talking about. But the investors that, that have done really badly were the ones that were very poorly structured prior to it. So probably took on huge amounts of debt, very speculatively structured portfolios. And not only that, but that when things got tough, they panicked and sold. And the ones who have done the best were the ones that were able to endure because they actually had decent investments. Not that prices didn't fall and were really nasty for a long time, but they endured. And then they, in fact, continued to build. And as as they continued to build, you know, eventually when the, the clouds parted and the sun shone out the other side, they were there at the beginning. You know, no one rings a bell at the bottom, but just by enduring and continuing to dribble funds in, they were best placed to really prosper on, on the other side of it. 
it just really goes to show how much psychology and these headlines, like uh, the ones I listed at the beginning of the podcast, really do affect people. You know, there's people who've got investments, but when they're hearing all this news, it's just impacting them so much. And all they can think of is just to sell. Yep. And you know what? Look, it's not my first radio. It's not yours. I'll speak for myself. I'd be lying if I said, you know, I was completely impervious to it. I mean, it sucks. There's nothing more gut-wrenching than to look at your portfolio where you've put your entire life savings and worked really hard over lots and lots and lots of years to build up and then just to watch it sort of just evaporate. It's really tricky. When we always, and we all say this, but when you look over long periods of time and you say, well, which is the best performing asset class? It's shares. It's shares over any meaningful period of time. And the reason for that is it kind of goes hand in hand with the fact that it also happens to be the most volatile and quote unquote risky asset class as well. If it was the safest, people would bid up the price to a point where you wouldn't get those returns. So it's kind of the reason that we have great returns are exactly because of periods like this. If it was easy without any risk, then you know almost by definition, the returns wouldn't be there. So it's not fun, but I try to look at the silver lining of it. And I'm very, very much cognizant of the fact that whenever we look forward as investors, we see the prospect of a market crash as a risk. But when we look backwards in time, we always see it as an opportunity. So when you talk to lots of investors, Phil, and when you're talking to investors and you were to ask them, what do you regret most about the GFC? The regret isn't, oh, I, you know, I lost some money during that period. The regret is always, oh, I didn't take advantage of it enough. It's always the biggest regret. So I try to remind myself of that as well. And it's almost counterintuitive that no matter how many times we talk about this and no matter how many times people are reminded, they get into these periods and then they don't take advantage of it. It's the, the old, you know, everyone's running out of the store when everything's on sale. Yeah. Hundreds of thousands of years of evolution have wired us that way. You know, if you were on the Serengeti and someone in the tribe yelled out, lion, the person who stood around and said, well, I haven't personally seen this lion. I'd like some evidence for this. I'm going to take my time to think it through. I mean, that person got eaten, right? It just, when everyone starts running, you run as well, right? Because that's <laughs> generally a really good survival mechanism, you know, 15,000 years ago. Today on markets, those instincts serve you really, really poorly. So we're just not built for them. So when you look at the investing grades, they're all a little bit weird in the sense that they just lack that panic gene and they are more Vulcan-like in their the command of their emotions and, and the rest of it. But it is, Buffett says it a lot, you don't need a really high IQ to be a successful investor. You do need a good degree of emotional fortitude though. And that is the far more important thing. Now, this next question is about, um, and this is based on a Twitter thread where I saw you contributing, and I've sort of noticed this as well. I, I look at a chart of the XJO, the ASX 200, and we're below the level of where we were in, what was it, October 2007. And it seems like there's been no gains made at all, but you've got an answer for this, haven't you? <sighs> the great thing, if you want to call it that, Phil, is with the share market, you'll find an example to prove any point of view. Because it's just there's so much data out there, you know. But the points of view that that matter are the ones that are more statistically valid, I suppose I would say. So there's a couple points wrong with that. The first is that that argument is a highly selective one in terms of the start and end dates. The start date is the absolute peak of the market before one of the biggest financial disasters in history. And the end point is just after the well, US markets have entered into bear market territory and things are falling. So you've kind of picked the high of one cycle and you know what is at least on, on the way to the low of the next cycle. 
So just as Vice said to you, hey, if you bought in May of 2009 and you sold in November of last year, your return would have been X. I mean, that's just, it's spurious, right? I'm being very selective in my data points. They're arbitrary numbers, aren't they? They're arbitrary ones and they're ones that have been selected to make a point. And the point that the person was trying to make was, oh, everyone talks about long-term investing. Well, that was, well, what was that? That was 15 years ago. Is that long enough? And if I bought then, I've actually made no money over that point. In fact, I've lost money on an inflation-adjusted basis. So much for long-term investing, it's all rubbish. Ha, ha, ha. You need to be a trader. You need to be a market timer. So my first point is, well, that's very selective. If, if we want to pick a combination of all any meaningful long-term five-year periods, you will find that 95% of them end very, very favorably for you. So you, you can't pick the one or two examples where it didn't work. The other point that I would make is, is that why are we only looking at half the story. If you had an investment property and I said, how have you gone over the years with that? You would include in your calculation the rent that you received along the way. <laughs> why, why wouldn't you? It's cash. <laughs> it's real cash flow. It's a real return. But on the share market, the general index that we usually quote, either the All Ordinaries or the ASX 200 is a price index. And that's usually a pretty good one when you're talking over relatively short periods of time and you know, you're watching the news and they're telling you what the market did. But it ignores dividends. And in a market like Australia's, where we are very focused on dividends, it skews the picture. So S&P, Standard & Poor's, who create this index are not idiots and they understand this. So they've also got what's called an accumulation index or a total return index. So what it does is it says, look, whenever a company in this index pays out a dividend, we'll reinvest it. We'll use that money to buy more units in the index. So just like a simple dividend reinvestment plan? Yeah, yeah. And why wouldn't you, right? Like, again, this isn't being clever. This is, in fact, this is more accurate than the other one, which only looks at the capital appreciation. So if you do that, you realize that even if you want to be very selective in the dates and you want to choose the absolute height of the market before one of the biggest crashes in history, and you want to choose now, the market has doubled in that time, absolutely doubled in that time. And not because there was incredible run of super normal dividends that were being paid, but just just the three to four percent average that's just being paid out over a long period of time, reinvested. It just means that you get a far, far, far better return. And so it's wrong. It's wrong to say that the market is below where it was in two thousand and seven. It's right if you want to exclude dividends, but why would you? And that three to four percent that you mentioned, that's not just based on the purchase price of what you bought, because that's going to be increasing every year, isn't it? That uh, dividend on an inflation basis. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's always dangerous dealing with averages. There'll be some companies that are currently paying a 1% yield on a trailing basis and others that are 8%. But yeah, on, on average for the market, it tends to be about 3 to 4%. By the way, I've not included franking credits, but you as an investor should, plus some franking credits on top of that. But This is what's deceptive about dividends is that people will say, well, why would I take a company that's giving me a 2% yield when I could get a 4% yield over here? I'm an income investor. Income is what matters to me. And I would say, well, you can't actually make that comparison unless you factor in the growth. I personally, even if I was a very focused income investor, would prefer a company that's currently giving me a 2% yield, but each year they lift the dividend by 10% as opposed to a company that's today paying me a 4% starting yield, but whose dividend does not move each year. Because it's not going to take that many years before one overtakes the other and delivers a far, far superior stream of income over the fullness of time. So yeah, you have to factor all of that kind of stuff in. 
And it's all about how companies deploy capital as well. I mean, you know, a company can be making lots of money and just giving it all back to shareholders, but how sustainable is that going to be in the long term unless they can grow the business as well? So great example there is, again, returning to Buffett, is Berkshire Hathaway. It's never paid a dividend. And he could, but he chooses not to because Buffett feels probably justifiably so that he can keep that money and he can invest it on your behalf. And he can get a much better return. So you could take the cash and you could put it in your pocket and do whatever you like with it. Maybe you'll reinvest it and buy it somewhere else. But here's a team of of investors that is pretty much averaging about 20% per annum over a very, very long period of time. Keep the money. (laughs) Keep keep doing (laughs) your thing. (laughs) Like, I don't want to interrupt you. So yeah, I've always felt that the calculus for the board when deciding whether they should pay dividends should not be based on anything other than what kind of return can we get if we keep that and how confident are we? It might be that we just, we've just we got an opportunity to expand into a new market or we could put it towards some R&D and build some more products. We could invest in a bigger sales team and get more money in that way or we could do an acquisition or there's a million things that they could do but the only money that you pay out is that which you don't have a very high degree of confidence in that you could get a, a superior return. Otherwise, give it to shareholders. A lot of companies don't operate like that. You know, something like a Woolies or a CBA, for example, know that they've got a very large component of retail investors that expect that dividend and they will continue to pay it, even when sometimes they might have a better opportunity for it. So there are, there are exceptions, but if you want to be hyper-technical, that's the best lens to look through, I think. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Recently, we managed to catch up in Melbourne at the Australian Shareholders Association Conference. And listeners know I go on and on and on about the <laughs> the association, but um, they are a great organisation. And um, you were the MC for the conference. How was it for you? What were some of your impressions? Uh, it was fantastic. And actually, for me, someone who works from home, it was actually my first sort of chance back in society after, <laughs> after lockdowns and the rest of it. So I thoroughly enjoyed it. I felt that even though things were pretty scary, there was a wonderful mood in the air. I think there was a good sign of optimism. It's been a while since I've been to an ASA event, but there was a very strong emphasis on things like ESG. It was really good to see a very strong female component in terms of the guests. So we had some really awesome directors, executives, and investors there, which is, I say that because as you know, Phil, it's such a male-heavy industry. So I feel as though that things are shifting there for the better. And I say that not from a, well, I just feel as though that's the way that we should go as a society, which I do. But also, as um, one of the guests pointed out, is that more diversity on boards actually leads to superior investment returns. So I think I can say that I can make comments like that because it's the right comment to make, but also selfishly because it just leads to better outcomes for shareholders. There was also a very big component on energy is very much in the news, inflation, climate. And that was a point that seemed to come up quite a bit as well. And interestingly enough, again, like the gender issue is sort of like, hey, this isn't a cost. This is an opportunity here. And there's some really great talks on on all of that kind of stuff. Actually, I came away feeling pretty optimistic about Australia's situation, that 
it's, it's easy to sort of be cynical and go, oh, you know, all these do-gooders, we're sort of going in this direction, but come on, let's just, we're here to make money. Focus on profits. That's all we want. We're shareholders. <laughs> profits, profits, profits. Hey, I'm all for profits, right? But it's kind of like, well, maybe we can do some good. In fact, here's the irony that I think is finally, finally starting to dawn on people is that we should be doing a lot of this stuff, again, for our own selfish interests. So um, uh, I've gone blank on the guest's name now, but he was uh, works for Saul Griffith a bit. And they were basically sort of saying, look, in terms of energy production, Australia should be the Middle East of our region in terms of the abundant cheap energy that we have opportunity for. If we only make the right investment, we are one of the top sources of all the critical elements in the world, abundant sunshine, wind, geography. We can produce steel and aluminium at a price that no one in the world can compete with. We have a comparative advantage there that cannot be beaten. We can all power ourselves for fractions of what we pay now, move ourselves around. Like it's a huge, it's a huge opportunity. And to hear some of the big corporate leaders and boards sort of acknowledging and talking about that was was exciting. Mm. It's amazing, isn't it, how the times have changed. And when I came into the, doing this podcast and I thought there'd be all this red meat capitalism and profits, 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 but it's it's not like that at all. It's like the world has gone in that direction to looking out for these kind of um, – imperatives. Yep. I think so. And it's becoming something that you kind of need to do really because capital is not going into certain industries because people are being rational about it. They're being rational about it that recognizing that other people are going to see this as less appealing. It's going to impact valuations. It's going to impact investment decision. So I actually, I'm one of these people who believe that actually we as investors can do it, can be a real agent for change, for positive change, because money talks at the end of the day. And again, I really want to make the point. I think for the longest time, particularly on climate, the the narrative was, well, look, ultimately it's going to cost us a bunch of money. So we might as well spend some now. We'll all make less money, but overall it's the right thing to do. And you know, even in the fullness of time, it's better. But I actually think we're getting to the point now. It's like, even if there was no such thing as climate change, you'd still do it. And you'd still do it because the economics are more attractive and the return potentials are more attractive. So yeah, it was a really, it was a really, really great event and um, some really great guests there. Okay, well let's have a look at um, Strawman now. We'll move to Strawman portfolios. Well, actually, just give us a little bit of an explanation because many listeners mightn't be aware of Strawman about what Strawman does and how the portfolios are performing at the moment. Okay, so we're we're not too dissimilar from the ASA. We're a private online investment club, and Part of the tool set that we give our members is we give them these paper portfolios. So you get $100,000 worth of play money and you can go out there and you can buy shares on the market. And that is partly because it's, you know, it's good practice, I suppose, but also we use it as a mechanism for members to signal to other members what they like. Whenever you catch up with other investors, the question is always, what do you like? What are you buying? What are you holding? How much do you like it? This is a way to communicate that. So I can dial up your profile. And I can say, oh, Phil's largest position is this. He's been buying and selling that recently. So it helps signal to the community what individual investors think is worthwhile. And it also helps build credibility within the community as well. So I can see who are the the long-term successful performers. And it's not because we're trying to sort of big up those that have done well and criticize those that haven't. It actually instills a great deal of... um, collaboration the rest of us because we all we all know that we're only you know a a bad market session away (laughs) from moving around so it keeps everyone on the level 
Yeah. And part of what we do is we then aggregate that. So we say, okay, what are the most popular stocks held across our community? And then we form an index on the top of that, which basically says, based on what everyone thinks in aggregate, what's a reasonable portfolio look like? I just want to interrupt just for a moment. It's not just collaboration, but it's about testing each other's ideas as well in investment theses. That's why it's called straw man. Yeah, actually it is. So it's not about me saying, I really like this and I think you should buy that. Although if you look at my portfolio and my profile, you'll see exactly what I like and why I like it. There's a million newsletters and stuff out there. We're not that. We are a genuine club where anyone can get up there and put their own ideas out. We all try and sort of, in good natured way, sort of challenge each other's thinking because the best way to improve an investment idea is to challenge it. And, you know, we're either right or we're wrong. If we're wrong, we can put our head in the sand and, you know, eventually the market will rub our faces in it and we'll lose money or we can you know, find some holes in our investment thesis and act before it's too late. Or in fact, just find some other ideas that we otherwise might not have come across. So it's just basically designed for investors to sort of come together, share ideas, all care, no responsibility. At the end of the day, everyone does what they like, but hopefully they pick up some new ideas. Hopefully they have some ideas challenged and, and hopefully we're, we're better investors as a consequence. Smaller end of the market is um, very much preferred by many of the investors. And uh, that's the one that's been particularly hard hit at the moment. And I know we're into talking play money here as well, but I'm sure some people would be investing in the with the same kind of strategies as well. What are you seeing? We're doing it really tough. So I was never designed this way, but for whatever reason, the community has gravitated to the small cap end of the market. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One is it's under-researched. So all of the, the big institutions and brokers cover all the top 200. And if you want information on a company outside of that, it just doesn't exist. So we've kind of built a bit of a brains trust for that undercovered area of the market. It's also an area of the market where there's best return potentials, I would argue, because there's less competition there. People tend to think that small caps are just super risky. On balance, that's true. But there's loads of companies, even companies that are worth less than $50 million that have incredibly resilient sales and earnings and balance sheets and the rest of it. They're the exception, but they're there. They just happen to be under the radar. So we like those. And they have delivered incredible outperformance for our community. We first launched the first version of the site in 2017. And had you followed just the communities, just based on what the most popular holdings are, that's a 14.3 per annum return over a five-year period versus about 5.8% for the wider market. So massive outperformance. But the cost of that outperformance is increased volatility because that's what comes with the market. So when times are good, we just soar ahead. When times are tough, we underperform. So I said before that lately the result has been (laughs) not great. We now have an inner circle of a paid premium membership that we launched in August last year. So it's about a third of that community portfolio has been lost in that time versus an 11% fall in the market. So we're underperforming at this point in time. Having said that, the interesting thing is that the mood on the platform is very much one of optimism and opportunity. And I think what gives us that on average, I mean, again, I don't want to speak on behalf of everyone because we're a broad church, is that although share prices have come down, growth-oriented small cap stocks in particular, in terms of what the actual businesses have done, they're actually great. And most recent reporting season, for the most part, we saw improved sales where there are earnings, improved earnings. The business is just getting it done. What's happened? The market's just, it, it, I hate the term, it's that risk-off attitude. Uh-oh, recession, bear market, sell, 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 sell. And that's just thrown a lot of babies out with the bathwater. So we've copped it, but it won't last forever. This too shall pass. And when it does, 
I think a lot of these companies are going to be the ones that go on to do extraordinarily well. These small companies, do they have any particular challenges for surviving these kind of times? I think the biggest thing you want to look out for, this is true of all companies, but it's more true of small companies, is you want to have balance sheet strength. For the longest time prior to sort of the second half of last year, we were in this growth mindset. We're ultra low interest rates. Didn't matter if you were burning through cash. All we cared was that sales were moving in the right direction and eventually a lot of money was going to be made. And we saw all these ridiculous valuations on companies that for a lot of these kind of companies were actually cash flow negative in a big way. So the only reason you can survive when that is the case is because whenever you run out of cash, you pass the hat around. And shareholders are more than happy to tip it in because the share price is high and optimism is high. And yeah, it's all cool to have some more money and you know do your thing. It'll all be worth it in the long run. And that changed in a very, very, very substantial way recently. And so there are a lot of companies that will never recover to those highs and they may not even survive. So what you want, what I want, I shouldn't say you want what you want, but I, what I want is I want a company that is not dependent on that. One that that, okay, our share price has dropped 60%. No one likes us anymore, but you know we don't need you anyway. We've got more than enough cash to sustain our operations. And if we are in a situation where we have been cash flow negative, it's only been because of the growth investments that we're making and we can pull back on that. In other words, we can still sustain existing operations and pay for all of our staff and all of our necessary capital expenditure just by the cash flows of the business. They're the ones that will endure. Not only endure, but in the grand scheme of things, never fun going through it, but they actually benefit. And the reason they benefit is when you have these big washouts, you lose half of your competition for those that haven't been structured appropriately. So times get tough for you. You don't make as many sales as you thought. You know, it gets tough. Your share price goes down because everyone's terrified. But then you come out the other side of it and there's all this market opportunity available to you. If you survive. You've not only survived... But as things start to take off again, there's less competitors around and you've actually strengthened your position. What are the tools that you use to work out whether there's a strong balance sheet and enough cash to cover ongoing costs? Uh, Here's the thing. I think so many people these days think that you need to have some fancy software and you don't. Everyone's online, right? Go to asx.com, look at the announcements, and it's a legal requirement that these businesses at least twice a year give you their financial statements. You can look at the balance sheet. It'll tell you cash. The very first item on the balance sheet is cash and just go down. You know, what else have you got? Accounts receivable, you know, how much money you expect is coming in from sales you've already made, you know, what's the debt, et cetera, et cetera. And you'll see there are some companies out there with balance sheets that are as strong as you like. And then I can look at the income statement. Well, how much cash are you bringing in? What's the cash flow statement like? Is this a business that is viable at this point in time? If it's not, is that only because of of certain growth initiatives that they're undertaking? Or do I feel as though that's going to change? It always puts people off when you say that because it's far more attractive for me to say, oh, just look at this ratio and do this scan and it'll tell, look at this chart pattern and it'll tell you everything you need to know. If it was a question of that, we'd all be Warren Buffett and it's obviously not. So yeah, it takes work. It takes a bit of learning and a bit of education. It's hackneyed, it's corny, I know, but the best investment you can make is to learn a few accounting skills and you'll you'll just get right from the horse's mouth for free on the ASX website. This is exactly what we're doing. And honestly, it's not complicated. You know, I, I think a 16-year-old could get their head around all of these concepts and they will be intimidating at first, I won't lie to you, and they will take a while for some of the pennies to drop. But it's no one's asking you to solve, you know, 
quantum field theory equations or anything like that. The mass isn't that involved and the concepts aren't, aren't out of reach from anyone of any average capacity. Yeah, this is something that's been forming in my mind about this podcast called Shares for Beginners, obviously. And what I've realized now, it should have maybe been called Shares. Buying and selling shares is not simple. I mean, it is simple to a certain extent as the the way that you're explaining it. Well, Buffett calls it simple, but not easy. Simple, but not easy. Yeah. Okay. Here's why it's simple. If you want to make money as an investor in the share market, buy quality companies at a sensible price and wait. That's it. That's so super simple. It's like losing weight or being healthy, right? Like, well, watch what you eat and do a bit of exercise. Super simple. Is it easy? (laughs) No, because hamburgers taste really good. (laughs) Because sitting on the couch is much more fun than going for a walk. It's the same with shares. I can make this statement. I mean, good quality business bought at a sensible price. Well, what's a good quality business? How do I know that? So the execution can be a lot more difficult, but the concept is super easy. Mm. Are there any other metrics that you use for valuing companies? Are they the main ones? I actually don't even get to the valuation point until I get to the point that I feel as though I understand it. Another favorite quote of mine is from Peter Lynch, another famous investor who says, know what you own and why you own it. So what is it that I own? Here's a business. Could I have a reasonably intelligent conversation with the CEO? I know what service or product that they sell. I know the market in which they operate. I know the key drivers of growth. I know the ambitions that they've got for expansion and how they're looking to do that. Again, it's all out there. Each year they produce reams of presentations and company announcements and and the rest of it. And just read it, read it, read it, read it. More often than not, you'll get to a point where it's like, either I don't like it or I don't understand it well enough, which for me is an instant pass, even though it could be the best investment. But if I don't understand it, I've got no business putting my money on it. But every now and again, you get to a point where it's like, it's actually a pretty cool business. They seem to be making good money and have the potential to make a lot more in the future. And it's only then that you even bother looking at the share price or even bother trying to answer the question of, well, okay, how much is it worth? And that next question is something we could spend hours and hours discussing. But all I'll say is I think simple is better than complicated. You know, Roughly, what's the per share earnings of this business in five years' time? What's a reasonable assumption of the market multiple? So, you know, I think the company will earn a dollar per share in 2027, probably happy to pay 15 times earning. So it's $15 in in five years' time. And uh, I want a 10% return per year, so I just discount it back by 10% each year. It tells me the price that I should pay or that I should try and pay below. Very simple. Only as good as the assumptions that I make, obviously. I think you just start with that very simple analysis. It just gives you a good footing. Okay, that is simple. But however, and this is the problem, you've got to start fossicking and trying to find these companies because you know what it's like. So many times you just hear the story, you know, it's lithium stock. Someone's heard this headline and think, okay, well, I've got to go for lithium stocks or, you know, inflationary environment, gold, we should be going for gold stocks. But um, it's really much more than that, isn't it? It's actually having an interest because there are so many companies doing so many interesting things that, like you say, especially in the straw man universe, are flying well below the radar. And you've got to go past those first level narratives. I, I can't stress it enough. That's right. The first level narratives. I love that. So it's true. Lithium's a great one. Here is what it is at the moment. Very reasonable people are saying, we are electrifying. And that is a big structural global transition that will take decades to play out. And for us to undergo that transition, the world is going to need a hell of a lot more lithium. I can't argue with that. I think that's spot on. No argument there whatsoever. But then that's where a lot of people stop and then go out, run out and buy shares. 
Well, guess what? The market is always forward looking. By the time you've had this epiphany, chances are most in the market have already had this, especially the people who do this full time and have been thinking about it for the last five years. So you go and buy a lithium miner, not realizing that the price has already been bid up 300%. It's all factored in. You get to the situation where it's like, well, even if that is true, I'm still probably not going to do that well. If I owned a cafe that's making $100,000 per year, it's a really well-run cafe and uh, you could be very confident that it's going to continue to make maybe that and extra three or 5% each year, you're still not going to pay me a billion dollars for that cafe. I mean, it's going to take you forever to pay off your purchase price. The sum of all of your cash flows are never going to work out in a positive way. So price matters a lot. So firstly, you've got to say, well, is it in the price? And very often it is for these narrative stocks. The second one you've got to understand is, is look, well, not all companies are created equally. You look at the lithium producers on the ASX, you've got some that are actually producing right now very good quality grade lithium, already have end markets established. They've got the whole supply network worked out, offtake agreements, and they've already spent all the money on the capital expenditure and they're just banking it at this point. And then you've got the others, which are, we've got a tenement of land in South Australia and a few holes have been dug and it looks like there's some lithium there. <laughs> We've got to spend the next five to 10 years spending tens of millions of dollars getting it to market. And by the time we do, there could be a huge supply side response, in which case the price of lithium has since crashed. So you've got to think through all of it rather than just, we need more lithium, lithium good, buy lithium. And a lot of money gets blown up that way. So great starting point. Start with the story, but fill it out from there. And there's a lot of extra work to do. Yeah. And dig around for other companies that uh, might be of interest, uh, which brings me, of course, to another podcast where... There's a lot of discussion about some of these great companies. Is Baby Giants? How's that going? Yeah, it's it's good actually. So I actually do another one for Triple M as well. So there's no shortage of po- podcasts out there at the moment. But yeah, so uh, Matt Joss, Kevin Fung, Claude Walker, some friends of mine, and there's no commercial plan to it. We just get together and chat because it's so easy, right? Don't need a lot of gear or, or money. So we thought, well, let's just put it out there. It helps, I think, us solidify some of our thoughts. It's a good chance to sort of talk things through with people that we trust and respect. If you want to be a fly on the wall of those conversations, hopefully it helps give you a few ideas and challenge a few perceptions as well. And Strawman, what's the next stage for Strawman? Strawman, it took a while to realize, but you know, when you first start something off, it's going to be bigger than Ben Hare. And I sort of looked at things like hot copper and thought, oh, it's terrible and this could be so much better. And we got some VC money and you know, the rest of it. I've just come to the conclusion that less is more. And so with Strawman, the idea is we're going to keep it pretty tight. We'll have a very limited membership, but really focus on the people who want to be there and want to make a contribution. And if it can cover its costs and if it can help me make some good returns, job done. (laughs) (laughs) So at the moment, we've got close to 700 members, really, really wonderful, engaged community. I think I've said to the members, we'll probably limit it to no more than a thousand We only open it for new membership once or twice a year. So if you're interested, you can go to the website and put your name on a waiting list. But we need to keep it small, one, because I feel as though it just delivers better outcomes, there's less noise. But also for practical reasons that we touched on before, we tend to gravitate towards the smaller companies. And if you've got 10,000 people chasing a $20 million market cap company, we all shoot ourselves in the foot by pushing the price around. So we want to keep it pretty tight so that we can focus on that end of the market without unfairly moving the price around just by our buying and selling. That's great. And um, of course, whenever we chat, we should also put a shout out to Canadian Aussie, one of your better investors. Hey, Trevor. Trevor, 
Yeah, actually, he's, well, he, I have to say second. I'm beating him on the rankings at this point in time, <laughs> but he is easily one of our best members. Lots of great content, a lot of good performance. and um, Very generous with his learnings as well. Yeah, and, and I reckon he is, but I'd also suggest he does it because he also personally gets great benefit from it and sharing that it's all what we're about. You share the thinking, you share those ideas, you engage with other people. It sort of gives you a way to sort of articulate all of these things you've learned, solidify the thinking, and then hopefully augment it with other perspectives. So he's just, he's an incredible learning machine. Okay, Andrew Page, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Always enjoy chatting, Phil. Thanks for having me. If you found this podcast helpful, please tell a friend, especially if it's someone who needs to start thinking about investing for their future. You'll be helping them and helping me to keep this show on the road. Shares for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not shares for beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances, or current situation. And thank you for listening to my podcast.